0: I heard the killers call my name. They were just on the other side of the wall and less than an inch of plaster and wood separated us. Their voices were cold, hard and determined. She's here, we know she's here somewhere. Find her, find Immaculate. I heard many voices, many killers and I recognized some of the voices, former friends, Even neighbors, who had always greeted me with love and kindness, but now were moving through the house carrying spears and machetes and calling my name. I have killed 399 cockroaches, said one of the killers. Immaculate will make 400. That's a good number to kill. I cowered in the corner of our tiny secret bathroom without moving a muscle. Like the seven other women hiding for their lives with me, I held my breath so the killers wouldn't hear me breathing. Their voices clawed at my flesh. I felt as if I was lying on a bed of burning coals, like I'd been set on fire. A sweeping wind of pain engulfed my body. A thousand invisible needles ripped into me. I never knew that fear could cause such agonizing physical pain. I tried to swallow, but my throat closed up. I had no saliva. My mouth was dry like sand. I closed my eyes and tried to make myself disappear, but their voices grew louder. I knew that they would show no mercy, and this one thought echoed in my mind. If they catch me, they will kill me. The killers were just outside the door, and I knew that at any second they were going to find me, and I began to wonder what it would feel like when their machetes cut through my limbs. I thought about my brothers and my dear parents, wondering if they were alive or if they were dead and we were going to meet together in heaven. I put my hands together and silently began to pray, oh, please, God, please help me. Please don't let me die like this, not like this. Don't let these killers find me. You tell us in the Bible that if we ask, we shall receive. God, I am asking. Please make these killers go away. Please don't let me die in this bathroom. Please, God, please save me. And slowly, the killers moved away from the house. And we all began to breathe again. They were gone for now but they would return many times over the next three months. This lady's name is Immaculate Ili Begiza, and during the Rwandan genocide in 1994, she and seven other women spent 91 days packed like sardines in a closet-sized bathroom where they took turns sitting down because there was only standing room. They trembled in fear. And in the midst of a mass murder, this genocide, in which most of her family and friends were slaughtered, she learned lessons that changed her forever. Lessons about loving the enemies that hated her and hunted her, and forgiving those who had slaughtered her family. You know, we're continuing our study this morning of Luke's. Gospel In the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus returns to the theme of his disciples being hated and mistreated by others. And he gives them a second command. Now, when he first raised the topic back in verses 22 and 23, he told his disciples then that they were to respond to hatred, exclusion, insults, and rejection... By rejoicing. He said, rejoice that very day and leap for joy. Give full expression to your joy, he said. A command that was both stunning and counterintuitive. But today, in verses 27 to 36, Jesus is going to ratchet it up another notch. And he is going to give them a second command, a moral principle that is nothing short of astonishing so let's begin by looking at the opening two phrases of verse 27 he begins with these few words but I tell you who hear me love your enemies love your enemies Remember, Jesus was surrounded that day by a large crowd of his disciples and by a great number of people who had traveled long distances to hear him and be healed by him. So in that mixed group of people, the instruction he was about to offer would have seemed brilliantly wise to some, patently stupid to others. But with his next three words... Jesus would change forever, forever, the standard of love for his followers. Love your enemies. Three simple words, and Jesus made it clear that his followers were called to handle their relationships in this world altogether differently. You know, in Jesus' day, enemies were pretty easy to identify his listeners lived in a culture that was saturated with hate and cursing and mistreatment it came initially from roman the romans who abused their power and heavily oppressed the jews not caring one bit for those who struggled to survive under their oppression but it also came from the rich powerful and influential who dominated the poor and the powerless and took advantage of them, never giving a second thought to those they stepped on for their own personal advancement. And it also came from the religious leaders who looked down their noses and spoke words of condemnation and disgust against the poor and the sick and the crippled. Those religious leaders were unmoved by the tears and the shattered lives they left behind. You know, in our day, enemies can still be pretty easy to identify, can't they? What seems to be escalating at an alarming rate in our day is the hatred, hostility, and vitriol that is being unleashed on people. People who hold a different position on a sensitive cultural and moral issue can have their character attacked, their lives and businesses ruined simply because they disagree. People who hold a different political position can, will now be publicly maligned and slandered and lied about simply because they're on the other side. People who speak up for truth or publicly, publicly question the powers that be are being met with hostility and labels and threats and told to shut up in no uncertain terms. You know, enemies today still do their best to oppress us, dominate us, silence us, control us, or even to ruin us. And the hate and hostility being unleashed today is increasing. And people... Today, carried away by hatred and hostility, are just killing people now. Senseless violence. Last week, we grieved over the tragedy of 19 children and two teachers in a Texas elementary school. And this past Thursday evening, two college-age girls were shot and killed by an angry ex-boyfriend in a church parking lot in Ames, Iowa. All of this tells us that Jesus' words to the crowd that day are just as relevant and timely for us today. Now, when Jesus said to love your enemies, to understand this command more fully, we need to consider the word that Jesus used for the word love. The word he used is agape. And agape is a kind of love that always seeks the greatest good for another person. The kind of love that always seeks the greatest good for another person. Not necessarily what they want, but what is genuinely best for them. This is the kind of love that God has for us and for his enemies. The Apostle Paul described agape love in 1 Corinthians 13 as being a love that is patient, and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not proud. It is not self seeking or easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And Jesus is calling his followers, when he said, Love your enemies. Jesus was calling his followers then and now to give that kind of love. That 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Give that love, that agape love, to the most unlikely, undeserving group of people in your life. Your enemies. Give it to them. This kind of love, friends, is not a feeling. It's not something you're going to fall into. It is a decision of your will. Jesus is not commanding you to have warm feelings of affection for your enemy. He's not. Agape love is about choosing to love your enemy and seeking what is best for them, even when the feelings of love are absent. For this is how God chose to love us. While we were still sinners when we were enemies of the cross. And now that we are followers of Jesus, he is calling us to love our enemies the same way God the Father loved his. R.C. Sproul said, we may not be able to control how we feel about our enemy, but we can certainly control what we do with those feelings and how we choose to act on them. Now, in the next several verses, Jesus is going to give several examples of what this kind of love towards our enemy would look like. So look at these verses with me, starting again in verse 27. It says, "...do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also." If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, we all recognize the natural response mechanism inside of us when we are personally offended, right? Of course we do. We did the, the, the desire for retaliation begins to build. And the, uh, it's almost built into the fabric of our fallen hearts. The natural response is to get even. I want to return hate for hate and curse for curse and pain for pain. But the truth is, most of us want to get a little bit more than even. Isn't that true? We want to get a little bit more than even truth is we want to crush and conquer our enemy so thoroughly that they will regret ever having stood up against us and people will see us as the clear triumphant uh, winner that's what feels natural to us but that flows out of our sin nature jesus calls his followers to respond completely differently He said, I want you to practice a supernatural kind of love. A kind of love that will feel unnatural to you because it doesn't doesn't go along with your instincts. Do good to those who hate you, he says. When people do or say hateful things to you, turn the tables on them by responding to them in a Christ-like way. When someone curses you, publicly defaming you and calling for your ruin. Do not speak ill of them or think ill of them in return. Speak words of kindness and blessing to them. And pray for those who mistreat you, he says. Jesus is not asking for you to pray for the prosperity or the triumph of your enemy's behavior. He's not asking for you to pray for that. It's a prayer for their forgiveness. Just as Jesus prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's the same kind of prayer that Stephen prayed in Acts chapter 7 when his enemies stoned him to death. It is a prayer that their enemies might receive God's mercy just as we have received God's mercy. And for God to grant his grace... And perfect justice in their life. Verse 29 says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Now in first century Israel, if someone wanted to thoroughly humiliate someone publicly, the way to do that was with a backhanded slap across the face. This was a non-life-threatening, open-handed slap. Meant to insult a person publicly. So when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, he's talking about a situation of public insult. He says, do not return insult for insult. Instead, forgive and offer him the other cheek as well. It's not that you're inviting the person and wanting them to hit you again. It is a demonstration of how quickly you are willing to forgive them. That when they hit you, you are so quickly willing to forgive, you would grant them the other cheek if that's what they needed to do. It's also critically important to note this verse has sometimes been taken out of context to horrible results. Jesus is not addressing with this statement. He is not addressing domestic violence or physical abuse or assault or any violence intended to harm. None of that. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not telling the victims of abuse and assault to sit quietly by and tolerate the violence and turn the other cheek and give them, let them have some more. That is not what Jesus is saying. In times of violence and assault, those are times to turn, uh, those are times to defend yourself and get to safety as quickly as possible and notify authorities. But in a situation where it is a Uh, A matter of public assault, a backhanded slap across the face. Or in our culture, it might be spitting in someone's face. That might be more what we would uh, experience here. Jesus would say, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate insult for insult, spit for spit, slap for slap. Don't do that. Jesus continues on. He says, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And anyone, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. You know, in a culture where the strong could take advantage of the weak and routinely get away with it because they were the powerful, they were the influential. And so they could routinely get away with it. And in a culture where thieves and robbers hid along the roadsides, These scenarios that Jesus is describing were common, regular occurrences. And he was urging his followers to practice a radically different response to their enemies. Radically different than the world around them. A radically different response to robbery than the world. Refuse to retaliate, Jesus says. Practice compassion and generosity instead. Our physical possessions are just things. It's just stuff. And your heavenly father, ah, he could replace that at any time if he desires. So let it go. Let it go. Jesus is saying, when you encounter a person who is truly in need, be generous with them and compassionate. And in that day, there were always destitute people who were living hand to mouth struggling to survive day to day sometimes wondering where their next meal was going to come from and there were no community or government aid programs to assist so jesus said i want you as my followers i want you to live ready and eager to help the truly poor and if a person steals your coat from you in desperation just trying to survive don't demand it back in fact, offer them your shirt. They might need that as well. It's a good place to pause, and remind us that as we adopt and embrace and begin to practice these kinds of these teachings of Jesus, we need to do so in light of the fuller teaching of the New Testament. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In Second Thessalonians chapter three, the Apostle Paul wrote. For even when we were with you, he's writing to this church in Thessalonica. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are now idle and disruptive, lazy, just pretending to be busy. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So when we read these words of Jesus, we are not to interpret them as if Jesus wants his, or expects his followers to give foolishly and indiscriminately to every person who asked, every request that comes in the mail or every fundraising phone call that comes on the phone. That's not what God is asking his people to do. If people are being lazy or simply unwilling to work, then we must love them enough to let them face the consequences of those decisions. If we don't, if we just give them whatever they ask for, not only does our giving not help them, it actually enables them to continue making bad decisions. And so we must ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and insight in how we apply these teachings and we look to the fuller teachings of Scripture for uh, a more complete understanding. This supernatural love Jesus expects of his followers calls us to lay down our rights, to accept insult and mistreatment, to give generously even to our enemies. The world says, Love your friends and hate your enemies. But Jesus said, love your friends and enemies so well that people on the outside don't know who's who. That's a challenge, isn't it? Love your friends and enemies so well that people on the outside don't know who's who. Such an attitude will leave the world around us completely dumbfounded. They don't understand non-retaliation. They don't understand forgiveness or a loose hold on possessions. But you and I as citizens of a future kingdom, we don't need to retaliate. We don't need to hold grudges. And we don't need to clutch our stuff with a white-knuckled grip. Warren Wearsby wisely said, These admonitions that Jesus is giving in these verses... These are not just another set of rules to be followed blindly and checked off like another to-do list. It's not what this is. Jesus is using these uh, commands, these, these behaviors, to describe an attitude of the heart that he wants his followers to embrace. Jesus is trying to describe that his followers will have hearts that respond positively when treated negatively. They will respond generously when treated selfishly. They will respond gently when treated harshly. Do you see? A heart whose ac- Jesus wants his followers to have a heart whose actions are stirred by love, not by the way they've just been treated. Our hearts need to be stirred by love, not by the way we've just been treated. Jesus closes out this second section with a statement that we have all come to know as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The wisdom here is brilliant in its simplicity. The way we want people to treat us should dictate how we treat them friend and enemy alike not only is this an approach that even our enemies will admire but it gets to the heart of the deeper issue in these verses and that deeper issue is this jesus is calling his followers to form a community of people where nobody is treated as an enemy form a community where nobody is treated as an enemy Now, in the next three verses, Jesus explains to his disciples why this kind of love is essential. Look at these verses with me briefly. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Friends, listen, if we simply love those who love us in return or do good to those who do good to us in return or lend to those who we are certain will pay us back, well, even sinners do those things. So if we love like that, if that's the uh, extent of our love, then how is a Christian's love substantially any different than the love of a non-Christian? It's not any different at all. To a watching world, our belief and their unbelief look exactly the same. Sinners love. Sinners do good. Sinners lend money, but they expect to be paid back in some way. Anyone can show love when they expect to gain something in return. That kind of love is ordinary and common. And friends, it should never satisfy a Christian. It should never satisfy us. For Jesus is calling his people to a standard of love that is so much higher. A supernatural love. God wants his people to love our enemies even when there is no chance of getting any kindness in return. Even when our doing good results in more insults, cursing, and mistreatment. Even then, love your enemies. Love them. Look at verses 35 and 36. It says, but love your enemies, do good to them, Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In these final two verses, Jesus repeats the command a second time, and he does that because he wants to put emphasis on this so that they remember it. And he promises his followers that if they will love their enemies with this uncommon, unnatural, supernatural kind of love, he says your reward will be great. And that word great means inexhaustible and beyond measure. You will have a reward in heaven beyond measure. But more importantly, more importantly, You will be demonstrating to a watching world that you are sons of my Father. You are sons of the Most High because he too is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. One author wrote, those nine words, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, those nine words are some of the most wonderful and comforting words Jesus ever spoke for they reveal to us the very heart of his Father. Scripture reminds us that God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He causes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. This is the way God operates, friends. It's the way He operates. And it is to this higher standard of love that Jesus is calling each of us. So be merciful. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Friends, please hear me say this in closing this morning. If we continue to treat our enemies as enemies, they will remain our enemies. And our opportunity to point them to Christ will be lost. But if we begin to treat our enemies as friends, they may become our friends, and then the possibility of pointing them to Christ will be gained. And that, I think, is worth the pursuit. So let's love our enemies, as Jesus called us to do. Let's pray, and then the worship team will come and lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, I pray that what we have heard from your word this morning would challenge us. It is so countercultural. It is so counterintuitive. I pray that it would challenge our hearts and reverberate in the deepest part of our heart and mind. This supernatural kind of love, uh, we need your help for it. And we humbly acknowledge that. We need your help to love this way. But God, we want to. We want to help our hearts to be stirred by love towards everyone, friend and enemy alike. Help our hearts to be stirred by love and not by the way we were treated. And may you form here at CCC a community in which no one is treated as an enemy.